as you're settling here. Thanks for that highlight. That was good. I just want to share a little something. Jacob, I saw the presence of God all around you, brother. Just um, the anointing of the Lord on you, even at a young age. And I just sensed him highlighting that you had missions and church planting inside of you, but that it was going to be packaged in a different way. I just heard the Lord say, you're a tent maker. Just like the Apostle Paul brought together business and kingdom and church planting, there's something creative inside of you. The Lord's got a special recipe. The kingdom's going to express through you in a particular way, and then you're going to teach other young people how to do it. Does that make sense at all? We can talk afterwards, but you've got a special call on your life. It's an honor to have you with us. Does that make sense, Mom and Dad? Okay. All right. Such good things are going on among us, and it's fun to hear about what God is doing all over the planet. Uh, what's historically in modern history been an atheist country, the Lord says, mm -mm, I'm going to plant churches. I'm going to bring the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about how he does that this morning. We're going to talk about the cross this morning. We're in week five of our series on 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Esther, for last Sunday, talking about unity around the person of Jesus and his cross. I was on the youth trip at youth camp, and so I got to listen to Esther's message, and it was, it was rich. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians. We're at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, and if you remember, we're not just looking at a letter that was written a couple thousand years ago for an ancient church in Greece. This letter has prophetic power. The word of God speaks. It reverberates throughout history. So what the Apostle Paul is saying should ring in our ears. It's a prophetic letter for the churches of all time, including 2019. So I'm expecting today for the word of God to say something to us about the cross, God's foolish wisdom and power. Why don't we uh, read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. We'll have it on a, a slide up here. This is the word of God. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise <clears throat> and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Wow. 
If that is not biblical filet, I don't know what is. There is so much here. That is why we're breaking it up into some digestible servings here. So in verses 18 through 25, Paul's saying many things, but I'm going to suggest he's making four points here about the message of the cross. And the first one is found in verse 18. Look at what Paul says. The message about the cross is foolishness. What exactly is the message of the cross? It's many things, but it's about a crucified, resurrected Messiah. Paul uses the word logos. So this is the logos of the cross. It's about the crucified king who brings the kingdom. The father sent the son to liberate the human race, to enact a new exodus through the person of Jesus, through his death and resurrection. So the message of the cross is the good news. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was sent by the Father and human history has changed. Various facets of this message, aren't there? There's many facets to this and sometimes we focus on just the substitutionary atonement. Big theological concept there. The idea that Jesus died in our place and that the judgment of God directed at him was turned into grace and favor. And we Protestants really like that. That is a biblical truth. But did you know there are many other angles on this historic event? Sometimes we limit ourselves. It's like looking at the Grand Canyon. How many vantage points are there, the Grand Canyon? The same thing with the cross. If all we do is talk about substitutionary atonement, which is wonderful, we miss it. The cross says many things, including it is an ultimate expression of the Father's love for us. Paul says this in Romans 5.8. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us. How? In that Christ died for us. So the crucifixion says, God loves you. God loves sinful human beings. Another thing that it gives is an example of humble selfless love. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, and Esther preached about it a few weeks ago. So it gives us an example to follow. We see someone giving to that extent, giving of themselves, self-sacrifice, self-surrender, and it does something in our hearts. So it's a model, an example. We could go on and on about that. Look at what Paul goes on to say here about the message of the cross. It's something that separates and saves. The message of the cross, friends, separates, divides the human race. It's not my words. It's what Paul says. Separates into two different groups. What does the text say? Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. This is heavy. Grappling with this text was challenging over the last week, especially at youth camp, made for an interesting sermon prep. What Paul is saying here is that some people are in the sinking boat of life apart from God. They may not even realize it. And God sends the cross as a life preserver, a life ring, and says, lay hold of it. Your life is sinking, whether you realize it or not. If you were on your own, you're going to sink. And so the cross is extended to us. And Paul says here, 
that if we lay hold of it, we're what? The present tense here. We're being saved. This isn't a one-time thing. One of my favorite preachers, a guy named John Jenkins, First Baptist Church in Maryland, Glen Arden, says, those who embrace the cross are being saved each day. He said, I'm not who I was last year, and I'm not going, I don't know who I'm going to be next year. Jesus is saving me every single day. And church, that's good news. Because of the cross, we can say, I didn't retaliate today. I didn't get even. I didn't drink too much this week. I didn't look at pornography. I didn't cuss out my neighbor. The cross changes people if we lay hold of it. It is good news. This week I was thinking, okay, the human race is divided into two groups of people, those who are perishing and then those who lay hold of the cross. And I asked my 16-year-old Mia to explain to me something about the history of vaccines. Now hear me on this. I know that there's controversy around vaccines, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But this doctor from England named Edward Jenner in 1796 came up with a wild medical discovery and Mia educated me on it. This guy basically took cowpox and put them inside of someone who had smallpox. And then he began to inoculate, that's not true, that's right. He would take cowpox to immunize them. Mia's going, that's not right, Dad. I need her to come explain it. <laughs> Dr. Jenner is basically taking something that seems absurd, cowpox, the virus, and putting it in people to immunize them. It was crazy. Can you imagine being someone who said, I'm going to go to Dr. Jenner and let him do this for me? But it, it would save your life. So what appeared to be absurd and crazy was actually an antidote to save your life. Paul's talking about something similar here. He's saying as crazy as God's solution, God's antidote for sin and death seems, let the Lord work on you as the great physician. Accept the medicine of the cross. That's what Paul is saying here. A second thing that Paul says, verses 19 through 21, look at this. He's talking about destroying the wisdom of the wise. And he is saying here that God has destroyed human wisdom. Now, do you think Paul is saying, hey, turn your brain off. God doesn't like wisdom. God's given you human reason, but don't use it anymore. Is that what Paul is saying? Of course not. That's idiocy. What Paul is saying is that God has subverted and overturned human wisdom. The kind of attitude that says, I can do it my way. I'm smart enough. I can reason my way out of this. You know what? I could probably save myself with enough education. That is what Paul is getting at. And God overturns that. He references a text. Look here. He's quoting from Isaiah 29 to root his argument in scripture. And it was a historical account here where Israel was about to be invaded by Assyria and they put their trust in Egypt. They said, we're trusting in Egypt, not God. It doesn't make sense. We would rather trust the world power of Egypt. So Paul is saying there's a similar thing going on here. There's something parallel. Don't trust in politicians. Don't trust in conventional human wisdom. Trust in the Lord. 
He'll save you. Paul goes on to ask a rhetorical question. What's a rhetorical question? It's a question that the person that's asking knows the answer. And so he's pointing out in this rhetorical question three types of people. What does the text say here? The wise one, the scribe, the debater. He's basically pointing out and he's saying all of the people who are the smartest, the most educated, the real professionals, God's outsmarted all of them. So the professional Greek philosopher, the expert in the Jewish law, the debater, the one who hangs out in the academic context and can put everyone to shame, Paul says, you know what? They're all foolish. And left to their own devices, their own capacities, they can't come to know God. You with me here? This is deep. Amanda and I were talking about if we were to gather in one place, all the smartest professors, the most successful CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the most powerful athletes, the most influential, richest celebrities, and you put them all in a room, a thousand of them, they could not come to know God on their own. It's futile. Their minds, their riches, their abilities, apart from the grace and mercy of God in the cross of Jesus, they're foolish. They're lost. God has to come to us, and he saves those who believe. A third thing, we're touching on this already in this text, verses 22 through 23 explain that the cross offends some. I wanted to put many there. What do you think? Is it many? It probably is, isn't it? The cross offends most people. And look at what the text says here at verses 22 and 23. Paul talks about Jews wanting signs and Greeks wanting wisdom. And there's something in here, two different types of people. And he's not talking about ethnic groups. He's talking about types of people. He's talking about the Jews and how they demanded signs. Think of this. What did the Jews say to Jesus? Show us a sign. This was about their expectations being fulfilled. Their Jewish messianic expectations. You know what Paul is saying? The Jews thought they had God figured out. They had read the Bible, read the promises, had it all worked out. God was going to come and display that the Jews were God's people and he was going to conquer Rome. That was it. They had it all worked out. And Paul says, nah, you missed it. So the Jews were demanding signs, demonstrations of power. And then he says the Greeks, what do they desire here? Wisdom. These are two idolatries that are within us. Did you know that? We long for power on our terms. God, work it out this way. I've got you figured out. Even based on my reading of the Bible. And the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to overturn that. The Greeks, I love wisdom. There's a historian named Herodotus, and listen to what he said. He said, all Greeks were zealous for every kind of microphone that worked, every kind of wisdom. So the Greeks were known for their love of wisdom and knowledge. 
These two desires haven't gone away, have they? I mean, we still long for power. We still long for wisdom, doing things according to our reason, our rationale. And I just want to ask you, church, where are you seeking power and wisdom on your own terms? Paul is giving us a word here. He's saying there's no power without the cross. The cross has to imprint our lives. The cross has to work into the fabric of who we are. It has to do a number on your mind and your heart. There is no wisdom, no power without death to our own self-sufficiency. That's what Paul is getting at. There's something in us, isn't there? Do you have this? I want to be self-sufficient. I don't want to be needy. I want to be able to do this. Pick myself up by the bootstraps. And, and Paul is saying, you know what? That is counter to the gospel of the cross. What does Paul say here at verse 23? We proclaim in the face of this, these two tendencies in all of us, we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. I want us to sit with this for a moment here. The message of the cross is foolishness. If we begin to dilute that or scrub it away, we're changing the gospel. The cross is offensive. For the Jews to hear that the Messiah was coming to die on a cross was like saying dry water or weak Superman. It didn't compute. It didn't fit their paradigm. Paul actually uses a Greek word here, stumbling block, and the word is scandalon. It was a scandal. Paul came with his message, and it was ridiculous. The idea that the promised Messiah would be hung on a tree for the Jews, they read their Bible, Deuteronomy 21 said, what about someone who's hung on a tree? They're cursed. So this was doubly, triply offensive to the Jewish mind. A well-known black theologian named James Cone, rather controversial guy, has written a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And I read it and I taught it at Wesleyan College, and James Cone writes this, the cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat. That suffering and death do not have the last word and that the last shall be first. So there's some kind of connection. When I read that book, I realized this guy from segregated Arkansas had an insight into the folly, the absurdity, the atrocity of the cross. He says Jesus got lynched. That's what happened to him in the first century. Rome laid hold of him and lynched him as if he was a criminal. So he identifies his experience with the horrors of lynching, opens something up. If you want to really get messed up, read that book, The Cross and the lynching tree. And I just want to say, I reference different theologians. I don't agree with everything that they stand for. What theologian has it all right? No one. But this brother has insight into the cross, and I want to learn from that. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that he has to say. 
Matter of fact, I want us to think about it for a moment. We're going to be talking about things like this because I think the Lord wants to bring some Holy Spirit diversity to our church. It's not CNN's idea or the Democratic Party's idea. Sometimes we get sick of hearing about diversity. But you know what? It's God's idea. And so we're going to learn from black theologians. We're going to hear what African-Americans' insight they have because I think, I've seen it actually in the spirit. I told Mike, I think my second week here, I saw a vision and I saw a Holy Spirit diversity worked out here. And so I'm going to begin to prophesy that. The Lord is going to bring a little glimpse of Revelation 7, 9 here. All nations, all people, all ethnic groups worshiping Jesus together. Not because the politicians are telling us but because that's on God's heart. Amen? So this message is offensive. Very quickly here, it's offensive for Gentiles too. Look at the text. I want to uh, put something up here, a slide. If you'll put up the slide with the ancient icon there. It's difficult to see, but here on the left is the first sketch that we have. It's the first pictorial representation of the cross that we have. And it's disturbing. It's around 200 AD. What do you see there? You see right in the center a man on a cross, stripped naked, and what's on his head? A donkey. And so this is an early Roman graffiti mocking Christianity. And it actually says, Alex Amenos worships his God. And so you've got Alex here on the left, and he's worshiping the crucified one with a donkey head. And so this ancient Roman graffiti artist was saying, this is how idiotic the Christians are. This guy's worshiping a jackass on the cross. You know what? The message of the cross is foolish. It was foolish then, and it's foolish now. It's the equivalent. We love the cross, don't we? It's a beautiful symbol. It's a wonderful symbol. But over 2,000 years, we've drifted away from its original offensiveness. Can you imagine walking into the church and I have an electric chair up here? It's that offensive. Or a hangman's noose up here. We talked about Jesus, the one who was injected by lethal injection, put to death. I mean, it is, does that offend you? This message was jolting and jarring for them. And we've got to recover that. We've got in our evangelism, our worship and all, we've got to embrace the foolishness, the scandal of the cross because it goes to work on us. As I was preparing this, I just felt the Lord doing some inner formation in me. Brock, I give you a mind, but your mind bows at the cross. Your intellect submits to my working. Do you get it? No matter how wise or smart or how much we've read, we all kneel before the level ground of the cross. People continue to be offended by this message. Our brothers and sisters from Albania can testify to this. As I got to know Muslims in Chicago and we began to read the Quran, I had never read it. 
And I would go to the mosque with them and meet with the imam and learn from them. And then they would come to church with me. It was kind of an interfaith exchange. And I began to read in the Quran. Surah 4, chapter 4 in the Quran basically says Jesus did not die on the cross. It was so offensive to Muhammad, to the Muslim mind, that a prophet of such great honor could die such a heinous death, the death of a criminal. No way. And so the the Quran itself teaches that God snatched Christ out of that situation and delivered him and took him to be with Allah. The cross was offensive to Jews. It was offensive to Greeks and Gentiles. It's offensive to Muslims. It's offensive to self-sufficient modern people. It's offensive to me, should be offensive to you, and we should kneel before the cross. Amen? Finally here, the cross reveals God's power and wisdom. Verses 24 and 25. To those who are the called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Who can be saved then? I mean, if this is the case and the cross is so offensive, who in the world can be saved? Paul says the called. And there are people called. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires for everyone to be saved. It's in God's heart for the call to go out, for the gospel, the message of the cross to be extended to every person. And God will call. God will draw. And they will understand that Christ actually is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This power-packed section here ends with, if we haven't gotten the message, what does Paul say? God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. As a church, I think the Lord is speaking to us through this text and asking us to rediscover the power, the scandal of the cross and to not shy away from it. Why is it that we want to pour sugar on it so that it goes down more easily? There are churches who've lost the message, the preaching of the cross. Why? Because it's offensive. It's much easier to come and hear three ways to deal with your anxiety week after week. We could do that. Three ways to have great friendships. Three ways to build your business for the glory of God. These things are good. But I think God is speaking to us and saying, embrace the cross. It's foolish. Let God do things God's way. I want to build my church on the cross. This is the foundation and I want it to imprint the minds and hearts of people at our Lord's. I'm in. Are you in? So, we've seen the cross separates, it overturns, it offends some people, but really the cross is the answer that we need. It was the answer then. Paul's going to go on to explain the rest of the letter. He's really driving the cross in the ground and asking the Corinthians, contemplate this. There is no Christianity, there is no following Jesus without this cross here. So we're going to continue to look in our series at the cross. I just want to invite us today to ask ourselves, where do you need the cross in your life? Where do you need to embrace the cross, the crucified Jesus, 
maybe for salvation. There may be someone here who hasn't heard this before, and God's calling you to embrace Jesus, the crucified and resurrected one. Give your life to him. The cross brings deliverance and breakthrough. All of these things that we need. And as we have ministry time this morning, I want us to do it in light of the cross. The crucified Jesus. I'm going to ask now for some of the people that I've asked to come up and give some encouraging words to folks. We had more things planned today, but worship was so good we couldn't stop.